And at this point in time, I would uh, like to take to read out of Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. <clears throat> Excuse me. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you, make a wed- can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed." But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who, though we are your broken creation, you care for and provide for us with everything we need in this life. Um, In Jesus, you have given to us every spiritual blessing so that it goes well with our souls. You have also taken care and provided for all of our temporal blessings in this life, and so we now return to you these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings. We return them to you because they first come to us from your hand, and we give them to you asking that you would use them in order that your kingdom would be advanced upon this earth, in order that the wonderful good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we prepare now to come before your word, to sit beneath your word and to hear you speak to your people, Father, we pray that you would help us to hear. Remind us this morning that though we all come this morning from different places, though some of us come anxious, some bitter, some with heavy hearts, some excited to be in your presence to worship you, some unsure of what they're even doing in a church this morning. Father, please help us, regardless of where we come from this morning, to see that deep down, really, we're all the same. Because the truth is, we're all far more broken, far more torn and twisted by sin than we could have ever possibly imagined. And so we all need the same thing this morning. We all need to hear of the wonderful good news, to know together with certainty, that though we are far more broken than we know, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, His person and work, we are also far more loved and far more secure than we could have ever dreamed possible. And so we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might behold our Savior who is broken, that in Him we might have life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Please be seated. <clears throat> well, this morning we're starting a new sermon series, um, and I'm calling this series, I guess, uh, Stories of the Kingdom. You know, Jesus, um, he was a great storyteller, and he often told stories, lots of stories, to explain who he was and what he came to do and the impact that he means to have upon our lives. And we often refer to those stories the way Jesus referred to them, the way the gospel writers referred to them as parables. And of all the gospel writers, um, the Luke, he gives us more of these stories that Jesus told than any other writer. And so in this series, we're going to go through the gospel of Luke And look at these parables, these kingdom stories that are recorded for us in Luke's gospel. And we're starting this morning with the parables that Jesus told at the end of that passage that we read earlier out of Luke chapter 5 and verses 36 through 39. A friend of mine um, told me this story um, about this time that he got in, in, in trouble as a child, as a young child. And he told me that on this one particular day, all his extended family had come over to their house for some kind of family function. And while all the adults were in another room talking and socializing, he was in another room with his much younger cousin. And uh, my friend did something that day that caused his younger cousin to just cry hysterically, for which he got in trouble. He tried to plead his innocence uh, as best as he could, but the crying was just too hysterical and he was unbelieved and he he was punished for it. Um, And my friend told me that it wasn't until years later that he finally put all the pieces together and understood why his younger cousin burst into tears that day. And and you see, my friend, as, as a young boy, you know, nine or 10 years old, he had just bought a brand new yo yo. And he was playing with that yo-yo, and he was showing it off, and he decided to impress his younger cousin, a toddler at the time, with his new trick. And so he wound up the string and put it in his hand, and he threw it at the floor. And then he just let it spin at the end of that string and hover inches above the floor. And he waited a few seconds, and then he popped the string, and it, it climbed the string again and, you know, came back up into his hand. And as soon as his little toddler cousin saw this, he just burst into tears. Um, and, you know, not even a sophisticated trick, you know. Um, but, you know, most of us have seen it. But here's what my friend said he realized years later. Eventually, he realized that that little toddler cousin of his, up until this point in his life, everything that he had ever seen thrown at the ground hit the ground. And now all of a sudden, something was thrown at the ground with force and speed. And then it just hovered inches above the ground and magically appeared to shoot back up into his hand. And it just blew his mind as a toddler, right? He just didn't have a category for it. What in the world is this? He didn't know how to process it. And he burst into tears. Um, I want you to see... In the little parables in this in Luke chapter five that Jesus tells us here, he is saying in these parables, I am bringing something so new that it completely bursts through the old categories, the old structures, the old forms and ways of doing things. He is saying, when you get me, 
When you understand me, you will realize that I came into this world to shatter your categories and to leave you forever changed. Let me say this before we move on. You know, the the story about the yo-yo, it's a good story about bursting categories. But um, the big difference here between that story and these stories that Jesus tells is this. Jesus is saying, when I burst your categories, it's you'll realize that it's with better news than you could have possibly dreamed. And it will leave you not full of tears, but full of joy. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look just at two points out of this passage. I want us to see the presence of Jesus and I want us to see the significance of Jesus. So first, the presence of Jesus. And in this point, I kind of just want to give you a very simple statement uh, and some of its implications in this first point. And and here's the simple statement. Jesus' presence brings joy. Jesus' presence in your life and in mine brings joy. See, when the people came to Jesus in verse 33 and said, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of Pharisees, but yours... But yours, Jesus, they eat and drink. They are saying, Jesus, we don't know what to think about you. We don't know how to process you. We don't have a category for this kind of behavior is what they're saying. Because you see, to them, as one scholar puts it, real true and re- tr- real and true religion was an uncomfortable, solemn and joyless affair. Look, the most holy people of the day, right, the Pharisees and John's disciples, they took their religion seriously, right? These are the theologians, right? These are the seminary professors of the day. These are men who had, their chosen profession in life was just to be holy, right? You know, in the Old Testament, God had actually commanded only one time in the entire Old Testament that the people ever fast. Only one time. There were other occasions of their fasting, but it was only commanded one time by God on the Day of Atonement. But these guys, they took their religion seriously. See, they had upped the ante. They were going above and beyond. And what they had been saying at this point in history, they had been saying, real godly people, they fast at least twice a week, on Mondays and Thursdays to be precise. Right? And look, fasting was a sign of disaster. It was a sign of penitence. It was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of grief, right? This joyless, somber fasting to them was a mark of true holiness, of real godliness. Of, you know, this was a mark. You did this twice a week, and it was a mark of your sincerity, a mark of your real commitment and faithfulness to God. And they're saying to Jesus, you and your disciples with all this feasting, with all of this partying that you're doing, you aren't fitting into any categories that we have for godliness, for holiness and righteousness. Now, hold, hang with me a second longer. Jesus' initial response to these people comes in the form of a question, right? In verse 34, they come saying this, this stuff to Jesus. And then he says, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, listen, at one level, Jesus is appealing to the customs of the day. 
Because though fasting was at this time required twice a week for all those people who strive towards godliness, there was also this rabbinical law. And this rabbinical law said that during a wedding feast, the guests of the wedding are exempt from all laws of fasting. During that week-long festivity. Because, you see, weddings were joyous. They, they were happy. They were week-long festivals and parties. And you say no one fasts when the bridegroom is present. You, you don't do that uncomfortable, solemn, joyless activity. It is entirely inappropriate in the presence of the bridegroom. Even their rabbis knew that. But see, at another level, Jesus was making this huge, staggering claim. Really a category-shattering and bursting claim. A claim that he was the bridegroom. See, these men knew their Old Testaments better than you and I know our Old Testaments, right? And throughout the Old Testament, God constantly and regularly refers to, to himself and to his relationship with his people like this. That he is the bridegroom. And his people, the bride. Right? In other words, when Jesus says this, he was saying something like this. I didn't come to give you a new system of holiness. I came into this world after my bride. He is claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. He is claiming to be God in the flesh. Come for his bride. And he's saying when you get into God's presence. When you get into his presence. You are getting the thing for which you were made. And when God comes into your life. The only normal right and appropriate response. Is joy. Feasting. And partying. You know there, there are a few stories that I love to tell and retell often, and this is one of them. When my wife and I first started dating, I called her up one night to ask her out on a Friday night. And um, we'd already been out on several dates, and I had figured out that I, I really liked this girl, right? And so I called her up to ask her out for another date. Now, at that time, we were together living in Jackson, Mississippi. And at that time, she was working at a church, uh, helping out with the girls of a youth program at one of the churches there in Jackson, Mississippi. And when I asked her out, she explained, that sounds wonderful, but I can't go this Friday night. I can't go this Friday night because I have to go to this high school play that some of these girls in the youth group are, are participating in. And you know, and so she asked me, you know, instead of going out, would you like to go to this play with me? Um, and instead of whatever I had planned, now I want you to understand this um, plays, the theater, you know, stuff like that. It, it's great. Um, you know, if you're into that, awesome. Um, my basic thought was, you know, if it's good, I'm sure they'll make it into a movie at some point and then I'll and then I'll see it. Um, I guess what I'm saying is my idea of watching a high school play for a bunch of kids I didn't know was not at the top of my to-do list or my want-to-do list. Um, but here's the thing. When she asked me that, I didn't hesitate. You know, I, I, I didn't even blink an eye. Immediately I said, that sounds awesome. 
I'll be there. Um, And, you know, I wasn't lying in that moment, right? You know, right? I wasn't lying. It did sound like a great idea because she was going to be there, right? I mean, it was her presence that made the difference. Bottom line, the point of the date was being with her. And, And see, these fasters... Right. They have the form and they have the tradition and they have the ceremonies. They have all the religious behavior. They they got the painful, awkward high school play without the girl. So unfortunate, you know, so polished and put together is their obedience, you know, beyond the call of duty. Right. But it's empty and it's hollow is what Jesus is saying. Busy doing and filled with activity, but they are missing the thing for which they were made. The, The main thing. They're missing the presence of Jesus. Look, the thing that sparked this little conversation that Jesus is having with these people was what happened in the verses prior, which is why we backed up and read a few verses before to give it some context, right? And in those verses, Jesus had called Levi to follow him. And Levi was a tax collector. And I know tax collectors are unpopular to us, um, very unpopular. We got annexed into the city of Memphis last summer. Very unpopular people. Um, but in this day, unpopular to a whole nother level, right? They were known thieves and extortionists. They were even considered traitors to their own people because, you know, they were working for the enemy. They were working for the Romans to expand their kingdom, and they were oppressed by the Romans. They were known liars. Look, they, tax collectors were not even allowed to give testimony in a court of law. They were that untrustworthy. Tax collectors were not allowed to go to the temple and worship. They were deemed so wicked. And Jesus came into Levi's life. And he called Levi. And he was present with Levi. And he went into he, he went into his home, into the in this culture, the very center of his life. And he partied with all of Levi's wicked friends. I mean, later, you know, later on, Jesus gave Levi another name, Matthew. Right. One of the uh, one of the gospel writers. Matthew. And here's what I think is really interesting. If you read through Matthew's gospel. The only time, the only time Matthew ever refers to himself, he refers to himself like this. Matthew, the tax collector. You know, he never, he never got over it. He never got beyond it. I mean, Jesus wanted me. Jesus came into my life. Into the center of my life, he never got over or beyond this grace. My bridegroom came for me, the thing for which I was made. You know, the only appropriate response to that is joy. Right? And the story shows you that with Levi, that it doesn't matter who you are. I mean, it doesn't matter how far down you think you've gone. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you have done. The one thing that matters is the presence of Jesus. To get his category bursting presence where the only appropriate response is joy and feasting. 
Now, second and last, let's look together at the significance of Jesus here. And in this point, I really want to focus in on these little parables that Jesus tells about the wineskins and, uh, and, and the garments of clothing, the patches on the garments of clothing. Because, see, if you're thinking after that first point, you know, the, the first point, you know, didn't really, didn't really seem to satisfy me. Um, I get it. I get that it would not satisfy you. Because I wouldn't buy it either without someone at least attempting to, to explain to me why Jesus' presence should make me joyful, right? What makes him so significant that he would bring this deep joy into my life? Or you might be thinking, you know, I feel like I had this joy at one time, and I don't know where it's gone, and I don't know what's going on. I, I feel like I had this, but I'm missing it now. Or maybe, you're, maybe you've already written this off. Because you think that getting Jesus' presence and following him, that it necessarily means the absence of joy. Because you've seen it in so many people who profess to be Christians. Because, and, you, and you reason, because if I, gave, if I give up my freedom to follow Jesus, you know, if I give up running my life, doing life the way I want to do life, surely I could never find joy. Here's what I'm saying. No matter how you might individually be thinking about this, we need more than a statement that just Jesus brings joy. His presence brings joy. We need to know why. What makes him so significant? And Jesus tells us in these parables. Listen again to verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. It's actually pretty simple stuff. You know, he's saying patch an old piece of clothing with a new, with a new piece of material. And when you wash it, the cloth shrinks. And so, and so that new cloth, it pulls at the old cloth and it tears both. And both are destroyed. You pour... You know, you pour new wine into old, brittle wineskins that can't stretch out anymore and expand with the fermentation process. And, and it destroys both the wine and the wineskins. Jesus is saying that his presence brings something so new. So new that you cannot contain it in the old categories, in the old way of doing things. If you try to contain Jesus in the old forms, the old system of Judaism. He will burst through it. But, but I want you to think about it in a more personal way, because I think Jesus is saying something more than just the old and the new are incompatible. I think he's saying that if you, if you try to take him and make him fit into the old ceremonies and traditions and whatever, he is going to rip you to shreds. He will rip you to pieces if you try to do that with him. And why is that? Because every scholar, it's because every scholar realizes that Jesus is saying in these parables that he bursts through the categories because he is the fulfillment of all the categories. William Lane, he writes that these two many parables stress the element of fulfillment, which is marked by the presence of Jesus. See, Jesus is saying 
I burst your categories because I'm the fulfillment of all your ceremonies. Yeah, he's saying everything that the fast pointed to, I fulfill. Everything that the Day of Atonement pointed to, I fulfill. Every little ceremony and ritual that pointed to your need of holiness and righteousness, I fulfill. Everything that showed you that you lacked holiness and righteousness in the old system. Every ceremony that showed you that you needed to be washed. Everything that pointed to judgment and salvation. The need for a perfect sacrifice. The law. The, you know, the, he's saying, I fulfill it all. The author of Hebrews, you know, he calls all those ceremonies and laws, he calls them uh, shadows and copies. They're shadows, right? You can see your shadow on the ground. And it's the form. It's the outline, right? But it isn't reality itself. It isn't the substance. Jesus bursts through those shadows as the fulfillment and reality of everything they were pointing to. And maybe you remember how Jesus just kind of put it point blank in the Sermon on the Mount. When when he said this, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. Right? This is what the bridegroom came to do. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And if you try to take Jesus and make him fit into the Old Testament, not into the Old Testament, but into the old system, he will rip you to pieces Because he isn't just more of the same. And he isn't just an improvement on the same. He isn't just a new version, you know, holiness or righteousness 2.0. Right? He is the fulfillment of everything. But again, let's get a little bit more personal with this. Why did the bridegroom come? To fulfill the law and the prophets. You've got to get this. He came to fulfill all things. For you and for me. You know, most of us, without even realizing it, uh, that we're doing it, we tend to put Jesus in in these categories of example or teacher, you know. And, And listen, he was great at both of those things, a great example and a great teacher. But he didn't come primarily to show you how you can be okay if you live like him and follow his example. And he didn't come primarily to teach you things like how to live, live your life. He didn't come primarily to do those things. He primarily came to save you. That's what he is. The reason he came was to fill, fulfill everything in the law for you in your place. Look, all of us, all of us have a sense on our lives that we don't quite measure up. Um, that we're, that we're not quite enough. You know, and we might try to shove that feeling down or push it aside, and sometimes we're successful to be able to ignore that feeling and that sense that we have about our lives for a while. But it's something that, you know, we can't quite shake. It's always there, even if it's just a low hum in the background. This feeling that we don't quite measure up, that we're not quite enough. See, we long for approval. You know, we long to know that we are okay. Right? That we measure up and we feel like we don't. Honestly, this is why 
this is why so many of us are burnt out on religion entirely. Because the one thing I don't need is another system reminding me that I don't measure up. Another thing reminding me and setting, feel like it's setting me up for failure in life, right? One more system poking that open wound and reminding me of the brokenness in my life. One more system dangling this carrot of approval. If you just work harder, if you're just more sincere, if you just try harder. And so we, we see that and we punt it. I don't want any more of that. I got plenty of that in my life. No wonder so many of us throw our hands up in the air. We need approval, but it feels out of our reach is what I'm saying. Do you know the name Bill Russell? Um, he was an NBA star back in the uh, 50s and the 60s. And he, and, he hold, and he still holds tons of records, including 11 national championships, five MVP awards, uh, on the all-star team, 12 straight seasons in a row. Um, in 2011, uh, a couple years ago, he was also honored with the highest civilian award in the United States, the, pre- the, uh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And I watched an interview with Bill Russell when he received that award. And it was very, very obvious that that award meant so, so much to him. I mean, he was just glowing as he reflected upon receiving that award. And so the interviewer asked him what I probably would have asked him if I were sitting there with him. And so he asked Bill Russell if this was the greatest honor of his life. I mean, all of those other accomplishments he had in this life. But just to look at him in that interview, you knew that this was more important than anything he had ever achieved on, say, the basketball court. So he asked, would you consider this to be the greatest honor of your life? And I wrote down what he said. He said this. He said, no, it's a close second, though. And then he said this. He was about 75 or 76 when my father said to me one day, You know, I'm proud of you. And I'm proud that I'm your father. And, you know, I'm also just as proud that I'm your father. And then Bill Russell ended by saying, you know, you cannot top that. I I loved hearing him say that. I mean, it's a great father-son story at one level. But the simplicity of those words spoken to him by his father and the tremendous impact they had on his life. I mean, it makes you think, you know, the highest civilian award in the United States was a close second to the loving and approving words that he heard from his father. And you keep thinking about those simple words, words and you realize the impact that a, a man that gets those words said about him, he is free. Right. He can take or leave your or leave your your accolades and your praise and your awards because they will always only be a close second. See, somehow those words, they, they guard you simultaneously from both being arrogantly proud on the one hand and also terrifyingly insecure on the other hand, not knowing if you measure up. A man that gets those words said about him has joy that the circumstances of life cannot touch. And deep down, I think you know it's true. Right? Because even if you've given up chasing those words, 
in religion, you cannot give up chasing them altogether. And we still chase them, right? Maybe we start chasing them in achievements in our career, right? Or we chase those words of approval and love and, and desirability in, in being a good parent, right? Or a successful parent or having enough money in the bank account or getting the right person to marry you or being accepted by the right crowd. You know, or even just trying to shake loose of the shame that's in your life. We're always chasing it. Let me end, end with this. Just two chapters earlier in Luke's gospel, when, when Jesus began his public ministry, he was baptized in the Jordan River, and a voice from heaven was heard. His father was beaming in love over his son. And he said this to his son, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Those words of approval, of affirmation, of love. And here's what I'm saying. Jesus earned those words through his perfect life. But here's the deal. When you realize that he lived his perfect life for you, that he fulfilled all things for you, he did that so that you can get his presence in your life. And if you trust in him, this is what the gospel says. Those words don't just belong to Jesus. In him, they belong to you. And what happens when you get those words? You don't lose your freedom. You get freedom. And you finally have a reason for joy independent of life's circumstances. And so you party and you invite your wicked friends to come and meet this Jesus. Because he alone, he alone is able to burst your categories with better news than you could have possibly dreamed. That you are fully and completely loved and approved of. You know, in this passage, I think Jesus is doing this. To these men here and to us today, he is inviting you. He's inviting you to the wedding feast. That's what he's doing. He's the bridegroom. Come into his presence and experience joy, knowing that he fulfilled all things for you. But there's also a challenge, and it's in this last verse where he says, No one after drinking the old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Even though the new wine is better, it's hard to walk away from the old wine, Jesus is saying. You know what the the good news is? The good news is that it, it is all of grace. That you come and you cast yourself on Jesus and learn what it means Not just to repent of your sins, but also to repent of the good wine. You know, the old wine. Repent of the old wine. Your righteousness. And come and rest on him solely by grace. And these words belong to you. You are the son or daughter he loves. With you, he is well pleased because of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the gospel. We thank you for 
news that is better than we could have possibly dreamed. Father, so many of us have tried to take you and make you fit into the old ways, into our obedience and our righteousness. And you are ripping us to shreds. We can never get comfortable. We can never shake the shame. We can never get free. Father, we pray that this morning you would allow us all to come to the foot of the cross and rest in the one who fulfilled all things in our place. And Father, may, it, may that good news spring up within us a joy that the world doesn't understand, a joy that nothing in this life really can compare or touch to know that we really are approved of, that we really are loved this deeply and this surely, that we really are accepted this fully. Help us to understand this. Help us to take this your word and apply it to our hearts and be forever changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.